Good evening, everyone. So good to see you all. Um, please keep your Bibles open. Um, you might have noticed in the reading that there's, there's a lot of things that Paul says, actually, and it'll be great if you're able to, to follow through and um, track with the verses. I'm not sure if anyone knows who, who Martin Lloyd-Jones was. Um, he is to modern preaching, what perhaps the Beatles are to modern music. And um, he spent uh, 42 sermons preaching through this passage that we're looking at tonight. And we're going we're gonna to tackle it in one. And so my prayer has been um, that this one sermon would have the power of 42. So let's, let's ask God for his help together. Our God, you've given your people minds uh, that can truly hear you. We must battle our ways of sin um, in order to take these words to heart. The words uh, that you speak will assure us of the life that your people have and teach us how to grow in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, last week we looked at Romans 7. We've been in the series um, in Romans. We're in the first bit of Romans 8 today and then the rest of Romans 8 over the next two weeks. And last week, what did we see? We saw that the struggles with sin come as standard for the Christian believer. And it's not just the newest uh, or the weakest Christians who find it a battle. Uh, I'm not sure you could find a, a more battle-hardened Christian than Paul. But do you remember what he called himself? Dave reminded us earlier. He calls himself a wretched man. And Paul was describing that, that jarring um, Christian experience of having a mind that loves to obey God, but this, this body that squirms and resists and gives the fight. Christian life at times has all the elegance of a rider battling a wild horse. See, our bodies, they do what we don't want them to do. <laughs> and they don't do what we want them to do. And Paul's point there in Romans 7, if I can put it this way, is that that inconsistency that Christian believers suffer is actually consistent with life before Jesus' return. It's normal. Um, but I think this raises another concern, doesn't it? See, if, if sin is normal for you and me, then has the gospel really made a difference? And that's the question you'll see printed on the outline um, if you're following along. Has the gospel actually made a difference? So Paul's convinced that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest spiritual development in the history of humanity. But if that's the case, why are his followers sinners like all the rest? I wonder whether um, the modern Christian has become so comfortable with the idea of sin in the Christian life that maybe we haven't recognized just how unexpected Christian sin is. Um, here's what the prophet Ezekiel prophesied about what the new covenant, the gospel age in which we live, was going to bring about. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So I wonder, does, does that sound to you like a wretched man or a wretched woman? Or does that sound like a Christian made righteous by the Spirit? Paul would say that it's both. But we need an explanation as to how that can be. So why does it seem that the gospel has done something but not everything? Well, Romans 8 is Paul's explanation of the now. It pulls back the veil on our spiritual reality to show us what people who follow God really are. 
And my hope for our time together now is um, that we come away knowing that the gospel is not just some skin-deep conversion. No, it's a resurrection of your very being, brought about by God's life-giving spirit. So you'll see a summary of where we're headed on the outline if you're following along. There are two points. You have the spirit of God, you've awoken. You have the spirit of God, your struggle is Christian. And hopefully you'll uh, find that my intentional mispronunciation on that second point um, was worth it and warranted by the time we've wrapped up. And if you take anything away um, from the next 20 minutes or so, it's this. Despite appearances, despite appearances, Christians have been awoken by God's Spirit. And that awakening brings a new battle for us to fight, just as our brother Jesus fought. So let's look at that first point um, from verses 1 through 11, if you're following along. You have the Spirit of God. You've awoken. So I was actually um, at a cafe reading this passage uh, with my fiancé the other day, and I, 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 we read through it, and then I asked that classic Bible study question. I asked, um, what emoji would sum up how you're feeling, having just read through this? Um, and you have to bear in mind she's quite funny, okay? So she's being funny here. But she said, maybe the swearing emoji. <laughs> and I, was like, I said, what? And um, she said, yeah, but the little swear symbols are actually over her head because this is mind-boggling to me. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, actually, I see what you mean. And maybe you felt that as we were reading through um, Romans chapter, uh, 8, verses 1 to 17. There's a complexity um, and a density to this passage. And after that, she said, well, actually, I think this passage is a big comparison, isn't it, between two sorts of people. And it bears out as we look at the text, doesn't it? Look with me at verse 5. Paul writes, Those who live according to the flesh think about the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit about the things of the Spirit. So there are those in the Spirit, and there are those in the flesh. And I wonder how that comparison made, made you feel as we were reading through. I think it's very possible to read this comparison as a Christian and, and sort of feel called out like Paul's trying to separate counterfeit Christians from among the real. And you might be left just feeling like, oh man, which, which one am I? But thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us to wonder. So look with me at verse 9. Paul writes in verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God lives in you. So Paul does not want uh, Christian hearers to, qu- to question whether they have the Spirit or not. Um, he knows that you can't put your trust in Jesus unless the Spirit is acting in your life. And so why does Paul want to divide the world into these categories, right? Flesh and spirit. He's not trying to weed out fake Christians in the church. No, he's reassuring a church of believers who at times feel fake because of their struggles in the flesh. He's trying to reassure them that the gospel actually has done something. Because as mundane um, and unspectacular and at times downright frustrating Christian life is, um, it is in fact a spirit-filled resurrection miracle. So let's start with verse 1, where Paul begins this section. If you look with me, he writes, Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. So in case you've missed the previous sermons in our Roman series, uh, those who are in Christ, that is everyone who has put their trust in him and responded to the gospel call, will be found innocent on judgment day. But Paul's already told us this back in chapter 5. And so as we come to verse 1 of chapter 8, his emphasis here isn't freedom from condemnation. 
Actually, the emphasis is on when that freedom comes for the Christian. So look with me at verse 1 again. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when Paul says now, he's talking about this moment, the now. (laughs) This moment of salvation history in which you and I now live between Christ's resurrection and return. A time when Christians, though wretched, are righteous. Why? Well, look with me in verse 2. Because the Spirit's law of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. The Spirit is installing God's new regime of life. And notice that it's past tense. He has set believers free. Um, some of you might know I'm here at the morning service as well, the 10.30. And, and this morning, um, after the 10.30 service, as people were filtering out, a little bird came in through that door. I was standing there, I was having a chat, and I just noticed this little, it was soaked with the, with the rain, and it was all heavy, and I don't know why I thought coming inside was a better idea, but it did. Um, and so after that service, we came in, and that bird was, had made its way up here and jumped off the balcony area up onto the banisters and was just basically freaking out, okay? And so Phil and I were on this mission to try and let, let the bird out of the church, because how else is it going to come out? And so this, this was our plan. We, we opened those windows there, right? Those windows are open. Um, Phil went up there, carrying a, a very soft, uh, bird-friendly ball, and um, I was down here on the ground, and so Phil, uh, with his sharp shooting, was going to sort of throw it towards the bird and shoot it towards the window. And um, if he missed, or we had to take successive throws, I would run and get the ball and throw it back to him. You guys, this is not that complex. Uh, it, was a, it was a classic goal shooter, wing attack scenario, okay? <laughs> anyway, the bird f- finally flew out the window, and everyone lived happily ever after. And I, I can only imagine this little bird is having just a time of his life, wherever he is. <laughs> uh, freedom is a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> And it's the life of freedom that people have now when they turn to Jesus that Paul's going to expand on. So look with me in verses 3 to 5. That's what they're about. In verse 3, what the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. So just as we saw last week, the flesh can't do God's law, the old covenant. And I love how succinctly Paul puts it here. God did. And how did he do it? As we continue reading, he condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in flesh like ours under sin's domain and as a sin offering. So what's Paul saying here? God met that law's requirements by sending his son. Um, And he knows this is in flesh like ours. Uh, And I wonder if you find that wording a little bit strange. Uh, I think what Paul's saying here is that Jesus truly identifies with us. He's not some sort of hologram from Star Wars or like a ghost from Harry Potter You know, if you recall Thomas touching the side of the Lord Jesus after he's resurrected. No, he is fully human, just as we are fully human. And so he can represent us as a sacrificial offering in our place. Now, if I was to ask you uh, what you think that sacrificial, um, that that sacrifice has accomplished, um, I think the first thing you, you might think of is that we're now found innocent on judgment day for those who put their trust in Jesus. And you wouldn't be wrong. But Paul's emphasis here, again, it's a little bit different. And I think this is key for us to understand uh, the the shape of this passage. So read with me in verse 4. In order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. God is interested in us being found righteous on Judgment Day. 
But our God is also interested in spirit-filled believers living that righteousness out now. If you're a Christian, he brought you to life so that you would live. Uh, I spent a few years in the UK, some of you might already know this, and I I was living in East London, uh, or if you watch too many Guy Ritchie films, I was living in East London, and uh, the place where I lived, it was in uh, Mile End, uh, which is sort of an up-and-coming area, which basically means there's a lot of drug crime (laughs) um, in British culture. Um, I lived on Southern Grove, and it was this really interesting street because on one side of the road was this public school, and I lived right next to the public school, and it had these big 10-foot walls. And on the other side of the road was just this gigantic cemetery, Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, again with these giant 10-foot walls. And so as I was cycling or walking up and down this street, it was just surreal. You sort of feel hedged in. Um, My house was right next to that primary school, and and you can sort of imagine which of the two places was noisier (laughs) during the day. Uh, But that said, the cemetery, I I would say, was surprisingly buzzy. They used to have like a little coffee cart out the front, and um, people used to use it as a bit of a path for their runs and things, which I think is kind of cruel, uh, given given it's a place for the dead. Um, a, A couple of my friends actually got mugged there, but not me, though. I wouldn't mess with someone like me. I have a piercing scream. Uh, But why why am I telling you this story? Uh, That road, flanked by these 10-foot walls, it marked a zoning decision. (laughs) A division that marked that vast difference between a place to nurture young life and a place to bury the dead. Now look with me in verse 6. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset of the Spirit is life and peace. For those of us who have put their trust in Jesus, you might not even remember when you first trusted the gospel. But I can tell you what happened. You woke up. You were resuscitated by God's Spirit. And when God breathes His Spirit into you, you gasped your first spiritual breath. And all of a sudden, a spiritual pulse displayed on your heart rate monitor. You may not have felt it. Uh, Your life on the outside may still not reflect the change that happened on the inside fully. But God brought you to life. And the difference between you and your old self is like the difference between those dashing out to a noisy recess and those whose tombstones are crumbling. And that difference is evidenced by a changed mindset. Um, so now when Paul talks about our mindset, he's not really talking about our brains, okay, which are still part of that fleshy body of Adam, that body of death. He's talking about our souls, our spirits, you know, what's in the control seat of our being. And so he looks at what shapes our innermost thoughts. So look with me in verse 5 there. For those who live according to the flesh, think about the things of the flesh. For those who live according to the Spirit, about the things of the Spirit. So if you're here and you have a desire uh, to listen to God, if Jesus is shaping the way you make decisions in your life, that's God's Spirit working in you. Um, And even though your life may be inconsistent, actually those signs of life make you living proof of what the gospel does. In fact, it's those very thoughts that Paul says aren't on the minds of those in the flesh. Look with me in verse 7. 
He says, For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. So so why is it that some people just switch off the moment they start hearing about Jesus? Um, I think that sort of lifeless look where people's eyes eyes glaze over, uh, I think that's maybe closer to the truth than we might realize. It's that heart of stone that Ezekiel was talking about. And so it's no coincidence that if the spirit is not working in someone, it can sort of feel like you're talking to a brick wall. And so what Paul says in verse 8 should be very obvious to us, as shocking as it sounds. He says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. We were in a series in Genesis a few weeks ago, and uh, think back to Genesis 1. What sort of God created the cosmos? The God of overflowing, abundant life, who wants the earth filled with life. Those in the flesh can no more please God then death delights the author of life. But if you're a Christian today, then your life in Christ, you're living in the Spirit, that delights Him. And so know that your spiritual pulse, no matter how faint it feels, your hunger to listen to God, no matter how distracted it can be, your delight in Jesus, no matter how fickle it seems, it's something that marks you out as a walking Talking, resurrection, miracle. Even when it's such a battle. Because that battle is part and parcel of living in the now, this period when Christians are both wretched and righteous. And that's where Paul goes next. Now, I I thought I'd use a diagram to help show uh, what Paul is saying. Um, I've been leading Introduction to the Bible with Dave and Renee, and we've just been thinking, oh yeah, actually visual... Um, visual aids are really helpful. I think they're really helpful when they're actually helpful. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure, I made this, so if, if, if the font is too small or it doesn't make sense, um, you can let me know. Um, but I based this off verses 10 and 11. So why don't we read verse 10, um, and then we can begin to see whether this checks out. So verse 10 reads, Now if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So, so Paul's, Paul's saying that if you're a believer then even though you're still in this body of death, actually you've been given a new mind by the Spirit. And I've used this big green blob to symbolize life and um, the gray blob to symbolize the old life of death. And so when we receive the gospel, we move right into that overlap. Do people see what I'm indicating? That overlap there. But Paul also tells us what's going to happen after that um, in verse 11. So read with me in verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. So there are three stages here. There's pre-Christian, Christian, and then the resurrected Christian, which is the future bodily resurrection. And at the bodily resurrection, there will be a renewed body to match our renewed mind. And we'll finally move from the now of the overlap to the then on the right. And we'll be hearing more about this um, in the next couple of weeks. So let's just think about life in that overlap there, in that middle section, because that's where we are right now. If you're a believer, we are post-conversion, pre-resurrection. 
And that overlap, of course, is a time of Christian inconsistency because we are fundamentally inconsistent beings in the now. Minds renewed, but bodies of death. And so the Christian life has this, this dissonance. It's clashy. And in that muddledness of life in the overlap, actually, that's where we begin to question whether the gospel has done anything, isn't it? On any given day, you might notice the righteousness over the wretchedness, or vice versa. But the fact that we see inconsistency is itself evidence of the change in us. We were consistent before we became Christians, weren't we? Consistently Christless in body and mind. But now life is broken in by God's Spirit, bringing all sorts of new living with it. It's inconsistent, yes, but it is life. If you're someone here who is um, wondering about putting your trust in Jesus, or maybe you've hesitated to put your trust in Jesus, and maybe that's been shaped by some of your painful interactions with inconsistent Christians, well, I hope you know that we hate our ways that have been sinful and harmed others, our ways that have dishonored Christ and masked the power of the gospel. But don't be fooled. The gospel has created life in us. And one day we will be consistent and glorious. God's spirit enables new living, but awakens us to a new struggle. And so now secondly and more briefly, you have the spirit of God. Your struggle is Christian. Um, And it's very possible that you've slightly dozed off after point one, which would be very sad because the point is called you've awoken. Um, so now's the time to, to regather and bring it in. Uh, for all the world's cr- criticisms of Christianity, I think there's one thing that people like about it, which is that it is sincerely a religion of uh, nonviolence. And it tends to bode well for our public relations in those interfaith debates. But actually, I'm not sure Paul would entirely agree. So look with me in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Christianity is a religion of nonviolence. Except when it comes to dealing with our own sin as believers. There is a no mercy, zero tolerance, scorched earth policy to sin. And if the Christian life is a battle against our sinful flesh, it's, it's one that we must fight like our lives depended on it, because they do. I mean, did you hear what Paul said? He said, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. In this area of life, um, it is kill or be killed. I was telling someone this afternoon about that bird story. It's been a big theme today. And um, they record actually another time when there was a bird here in the church. And this person, um, I won't say who it is, but it was hilarious. And he said he was getting so impatient with people sort of like folding their hands and not really knowing what to do with this bird. He just said, I'm going to whack it. And if I kill it, I kill it. (laughs) Uh, I I would personally take a gentle approach with the bird. um, And ultimately, that is is what they did. You'll be glad to hear. Um, But with sin, we don't want to take any chances. If you've awoken as a Christian, you've awoken straight onto the battlefield. And so we need this killer instinct when we seek sin in our lives. We don't give 
sin a chance because it will ruin you if you do. And so we thank God that this fight is not futile. If you look again at the end of verse 13, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You don't turn up to this battle unarmed. Each Christian has issued God's Spirit to put sin in their lives to death. Um, That's part of sanctification, growing in holiness, growing in our likeness to Jesus. Uh, I think it's always such an encouragement to meet a Christian who maybe they've been at it for a long time, and they've been truly fighting that battle. They have the poise of riders who have gained great control over their horse, and the testimony of a godly life to show for it. And that can be us if we're determined to fight too. And so I think it's worth asking yourself the question, if you're a believer here today, when you say you're battling sin, are you really battling it? There's a difference between struggling to stomach the damage you're allowing sin to do in your life and struggling to resist and kill it by the Spirit. You have every reason to take drastic action, to turn away from sinful ways, and you have all the power to do it. Sometimes that battle for sanctification um, is a bit more reflective and subtle. And Jesus' lordship corrects our worldview quite gradually. Um, I used to work in finance, and I used to look at a lot of mergers and acquisitions. This might have already lost sort of half the room, but if if you know what I'm talking about, uh, let's keep going. Um, The way I see it is when we we accept the gospel, it's like there's been a corporate takeover of our lives. (laughs) Jesus is the new head of the company, and um, suddenly we're profitable now. You know, he's a great leader. He's given the business a new, leader on, a new lease on life. And all the subsidiaries of our life, they're gradually conforming to Christ's leadership and business practices. Now, some of the, those old organizational practices, they need to be reviewed. <laughs> uh, we're still working out all the kinks, um, and sometimes it's awkward or tricky to know how to proceed. Oftentimes, we didn't even realize how many code violations there were. <laughs> And so overhauling the business, it's complex, and it takes time. Growing in holiness, it's just so slow that you might only notice the pain of change and not the change itself. But I wanted to encourage us that we, we actually have a crucial role together in bringing about that change. Uh, those yous in the passage here, they're plural. As we live side by side as spirit-filled believers, we have a duty to... to disciple and discipline one another. And might I suggest that we we do that with gentleness and firmness. As members of one family in Christ, with one family code. Um, That family theme is quite major in the passage. Uh, So look with me in verse 14. It says, All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. Now, Christians being called God's sons, it actually comes up twice here. Um, The second time gets masked in translation. In verse 15, it says, if you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Um, In my opinion, it really should say adoption as sons. But but why sons? You know, why not use that ungendered term children as we get later in verse 16? Uh, Some point to the um, ancient uh, practice of primogeniture here. I'm not sure if people have heard that word, uh, but it was where the eldest son had this privilege to inherit the father's estate, right? And so the argument goes, actually, it's a huge privilege 
um, that Paul would say that all Christians are treated as sons, whether male or female, because really it was the eldest son who inherits. Um, many brilliant um, Christians and scholars think that. Personally, I don't think that's what's going on here. Because not only does Paul use that ungendered term children when he's talking about inheritance later on, um, he makes no reference to age or being the eldest. No, I think Paul is not interested here in the privilege of masculinity. He's interested in the privilege of Christianity. <laughs> or might I say, Christianity. Because the whole framework Paul's been building and developing through the book is this contrast between two sorts of sons, Adam and Christ. And so Paul isn't talking about us relating to God as sons instead of daughters, but relating to God as the son of God rather than Adam. So who is it who cries out, Abba, Father? It's the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The moment of his soul-rending struggle and temptation in the flesh, Jesus calling on God with the intimacy of a son to a father. Abba, this beautiful Aramaic term of, of sincere familiarity with one's father. And so what does it mean that Christians can cry out, Abba, Father? It means we can approach the father as the son did. We can call out to him in this, this struggle of the overlap of the now, this painful battle, not with fear, like slaves who could be cast out of the household and replaced, but as daughters and sons in God's family who enjoy the intimacy and the security and the trust that even Jesus has as he calls on his father, our father. When we talk about Christianity, if you're a believer here, when you talk about Christianity, we might be used to first thinking about, okay, what church do I go to? What is my Bible reading pattern? And what's my prayer life like? And those are all great things. They all stem, though, from the life of Jesus. Really, you are describing your, your Christianity, your life that is in him and not in the old way of Adam. You have his spirit. You follow his pattern of life, a life that in some ways is ordinary like Jesus's, so ordinary that really people didn't think it was anything special, but a life that is extraordinary like Jesus's, pleasing to God, even bearing fruit for the kingdom now. And so in verse 17, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Um, that life in the overlap is unglamorous and at times disheartening, just like his time on earth was. But the life we now have will blossom into glory, just like his. Um, as we close, I thought it would be um, good to talk about the fruit of, of fighting the battle. I think there's a big difference between um, Christian maturity um, and just plain adulting, if that makes sense. Uh, by God's kindness, everyone sort of grows up and matures in one way or another, whether they're in Christ or not. But as believers, actually, some of the changes you see in your life, they can only be attributed to the life that Christ gives you. I mean, what would possess you to take up your cross, to grow in humility, to put yourself out there and share the gospel with somebody, to bless someone in, in costly ways that only God can see? What would possess us to aspire to a way of life that the unbelieving world thinks is foolish? 
only the mind of Christ at work in us. Um, I, I received a really beautiful message from a Christian brother uh, this week um, who just wanted to share a way in which I was an encouragement to him in a particular area of my life. And uh, little did he know how long that area of life has been a painful struggle for me and battling my sinful ways. And it was his, his message that caused me to take inventory of the way that God's Spirit had been working in me. The slow and painful work of my battles with sin, the great love of those around me, and the patience to disciple me with clarity and show me a way forward. It's in moments like this when we register that there really is a mind, a new mind in this body of death. And it dawns on us what God's Spirit has been doing the whole time. And so might I encourage you to call out the growth that you see in your Christian brothers and sisters and dignify that change as the work of resurrection that it is. Has the gospel actually made a difference? Yes. And don't let your eyes deceive you. You've awoken, which sounded the trumpet for that battle against your body of death. And as you struggle in this time of the overlap, know that you do so as a precious, beloved child in God's household. You're a Christian, just like the son whom we follow. Let's pray. Abba, Father, uh, we think of the way our brother Jesus prayed to you, and just like him, we cry out to you now in the heat of battle. So please give us strength to battle our flesh as your people, and let that life that you've given us become more and more apparent to us and to others as we do. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.